everybody. Welcome to episode 10 of Drop the Needle in the Haystack, a podcast where we use the Forgotify website to find the news tracks on Spotify that have yet to be played. And then we talk about them. And I'm Robbie, and I'm joined as always by Eric and Matt, but we have a very special guest who Matt so, is going to introduce. Everyone, I'd like to introduce my good friend, Stephen Crino. So we've got Mr. Steve Crino. He's a composer. He's a fellow classmate of mine at Peabody, where we did our master's, and we are both currently doing our doctorate. And he's been studying with, of course, Michael Hirsch and Kevin Putz. He's also been teaching music theory and working with Omar Thomas and Ildar Kananov and Kip Weil. So all good stuff going over there at Peabody. And Steve's music has been performed by ensembles and soloists such as Peter Shepard Scarvard, the Podcast Opera Company, the Philadelphia Experimental Theater Ensemble, and the Temple Composers Orchestra, and the Temple University Singers. So Steve, why don't you say hello to the folks at home? Hey, everybody. I'm super happy to be here. And Thanks with for that, coming on the show, yeah. No problem. With that, why don't we just get right into the music? We've got some real good ones, I think. So Eric, this one is yours up first, right? Yeah. Yep. So this is a real good year for beer. On the Tell me album, about it, right? <laughs> a good year for beer. Is that a suggestion? <laughs> <laughs> it is certainly topical. And this is by Chris Reeves. So why don't we just listen to uh, the first little bit of it? All right. So let's start us off around 11 seconds in. You're stuck in romance Cause heartache's on the rise Wedding bonds are worthless Just fancy words for life Invest in malt and barley Brewers, yeast and hops Then every time you drink a cold one You can profit from your loss Wow. Yeah, there we I go. I listened to the lyrics this time, Eric. Yeah, right? Oh my god! Uh, <laughs> Very sad. Yeah, it like just trailed off into darkness at the end. Yeah. Um, Eric, tell us about the sad funeral dirge you picked up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so let's let's hear a little bit about Chris Reeves first. All right, Chris Reeves on his website mytexasmusic.com is a musician. He has been a musician since he was ten years old. He's been performing on stage for twenty years. Growing up in West Texas, he played lead guitar for numerous bands in dance halls and honky-tonks. In 2004, he was recruited to the Texas Hill Country by, I think it's a band, by country artist and fellow MTM member Craig Dillingham. Since then, he has played lead guitar for other MTM members, holds other lead guitar spots, and has obviously released this own album. First of all, what did we say earlier? I I had previously said that um, or thought that honky tonk was an adjective, you know, used to describe the donkadonks. <laughs> no, the donkadonks for one, or mostly. more per, perhaps more famously, Billy Ray Cyrus's heart in uh, yeah. honky tonk heart. I think so. Body parts usually it is typically. <laughs> <laughs> but we have determined through Googling this that it's actually a noun, right? And and what was the definition? I liked how they I think he it. said like a, a dive bar, basically. Yeah, it's basically a dive bar. Here, I'll pull it up. Where, like, where country music is being played. I think that's in, in, intrinsic to the yeah. honky-tonk. So, uh, so if you type honky-tonk into Google, at least in North America, it is, con it is a cheap or disreputable bar, club, or dance hall, typically where country music is played. Right, because okay. you can have shitty bars anywhere. It's the country music that makes it a honky-tonk. Particularly disreputable. Right. <laughs> yeah, I like that addition. Yeah, no, no, no. I was just going to say, you know, I think this really embodies uh, embodies the genre, right? You know, this is, uh, it's honky-tonk. I don't, I don't know yeah, how to explain there's... it. You know, it's just, it is what it is, right? It's like, uh, I like the lyrics. I don't, uh, can you click on the album for a second, Matt? I want to talk about the the other tracks on the title so we've got <laughs> ain't no fun to be alone in san antonio san antonio what san, san antonio antone okay. so it rhymes eric ain't yeah. no fun to be alone see, in san antone christ i got what's it. wrong with cheater's you? honor <laughs> somebody's trying to get next to you 
homecoming, uh, a real good year for beer. I'll be missing you between you and me. I'll close my eyes. So sounds to me like this year, maybe he went through a divorce or a lost uh, spouse or someone left him. There's certainly a programmatic nature to the album. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Robbie, what do you think about this? What do I think about this, Eric? Well, you know, I love a real good thematic, strong hook and a rhyme, especially with a song like A Real Good Year for Beer. And then I love when he starts talking about investing malt and barley and is like, it's going to be a rhyme that comes up now that ties it all together to the title of the song. And I can just feel it coming the whole way. And I love it when it happens. That's what came to my mind immediately. It was... <laughs> pretty sad there at the end all of a sudden it got no to be honest each each like stanza gets sadder and more i'd say like sarcastic than the the previous i mean Mm. but i mean there's 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 some real irony to the humor of the sarcasm of the lyrics to this the the typical swung country boogie rhythm is that like a boogie rhythm the the super late triplet like what do you guys think i call that a shuffle like a shuffle yeah like an old-fashioned Triplet. Yeah, I would probably do a shuffle as well. Say shuffle. Yeah, Steve, you're a drummer. You would know. Yeah, I mean, like, I, that's like a standard shuffle. I mean, there are maybe there are some kind of other terms to describe the specifics of that, like within the country like medium. I don't, I don't play country music that much, so. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it falls into that standard shuffle. But would that be a? This is this is really splitting hairs now because from a notational standpoint, I've seen both. Is that a notated triplet? Is this like, I don't know, 12, 8, or is this just swung eighth notes? You're assuming they wrote it down somewhere. (laughs) You could probably see it either way, honestly. It depends on who's doing the notating. I don't know. I I feel like I would maybe see it as triplets more so, where like with like jazz, like a swing or something, you would just have that in like eighth notes and you would just write swing or something. That's just my dumb notation curiosity because I I often wonder what people think. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think I would. I think it would end up being triplets. But I, you know, I'm not. I'm not positive to be honest. But either way, these these country songs that we keep kind of getting. I think Steve mentioned that, like, you know, it's it seemed hard to avoid getting country music from Forgotify. And at some point, they almost start parodying themselves. I mean, yeah, like in, in the best way. This is so true to form. It's the typical blues progression with a shuffle rhythm and even that twangy. What is that guitar? A slide guitar. A steel? lap steel. Lap steel. Lap steel. Is that yeah. what that sound is? That might be that. Yeah, because yeah, it's like, I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's a slide guitar, but it's like at some point they're using the slide, right? They're using that like, like the like the, the ring, basically the metal ring they put oh, on. Oh yeah, the, the tube. They, those glisses. But like sometimes you can. There's like a lap steel guitar where people play that like like literally on their lap and do that. And then some guys use like a slide when they play. I'm not sure exactly which one, but it's clearly using that like the slide technique, right? Yeah. Either way, he's hitting all the marks for this this genre of music. <laughs> That's a that's a fun one, Eric. Shall we move on to my gift to you for this week? Aww. Yes, I would love to hear your gift to me, Matthew. I'm so excited. You know, if you've been watching the show, you know that our our host here, Eric, is a clarinet enthusiast, one might say. You know, Eric's been making jokes on the show about getting clarinet content in here, but I finally got him. So this week, we've got a uh, famous clarinetist acker bilk and this is his song here's that rainy day so i'll just i'll just uh play the music and i'll I'll let eric kind of get at it So, Eric, what can you tell us about Acker Bilk? Okay, yeah. So, Acker Bilk was a jazz clarinetist. Uh, and just looking, he's a British, specifically, jazz clarinetist, which, honestly, that's not a super common thing, you know, to have a notable clarinetist, especially from Britain, playing jazz. Well, there's plenty of notable British clarinetists, but I think he's the only one I can think of off of the top of my head that's from 
from Britain. So Bilk played with friends on the Bristol jazz circuit. And then in 1951, moved to London, uh, where he played with Ken Coiler's band. Uh, he later returned West and uh, lived out his life there. But he's also a vocalist. He's known for his breathy, vibrato-rich, low-register and style. And I guess he had a pretty distinctive appearance of a goatee, bowler hat, and striped waistcoat. It also says here that he lost two front teeth in a school fight and half a finger in a sledging accident, both Ooh. of which he said affected his eventual clarinet style. So definitely a distinctive-looking guy probably would stand out if you saw him on the streets. But um, Eric, I'm really curious. I want to let you go off on this. Why is this kind of unusual? Everything about this, right? Yeah, so I don't know if it's unusual. Okay, so I, I of course, come from the classical medium. And classical clarinet, I'm not going to say it has a lot of rules, but equipment-wise, it requires very specific, you know, reed, mouthpiece, instrument kind of setups. You're trying to get a certain amount of resistance from the instrument to produce a sound that's more associated with the classical medium. But in the jazz medium for clarinet, it's basically the opposite. Where in the classical medium, you might play on a reasonably resistant and back, back pressure heavy kind of setup. In the jazz environment, you're playing on a super open kind of mouthpiece that lets a lot of air go through. You're playing on a super soft reed, so there's very little resistance. And that's what's kind of creating this very specific tone that he's getting. I mean this in the nicest way. It's almost kazoo-like at times. It's, you know, very wide sounding. It's harmonically rich for sure. And there's a natural vibrato. And the reason, part of the reason that clarinetists will play on these soft reeds and wide open mouthpieces is specifically so that they can control the vibrato and get this particularly kind of wide, harmonically rich sound much, much easier. The vibrato kind of happens naturally almost due to the setup. And it's, uh, it's pretty common in, in most jazz clarinets playing, but jazz clarinet's not a po like a popular instrument anymore. It's not like a popular right. part of the genre. So we just don't hear it that often anymore. You don't really hear too many clarinetists still playing like this today. And the, the distinct thing, too, isn't, isn't it that, like, of course, you know, classical clarinet does not use vibrato. It's one of the few classical instruments that does not really engage heavily in vibrato, right? Yeah, there's, there's a few historic cases of clarinetists playing vibrato. Uh, for instance, uh, on the Brahms clarinet sonatas, the clarinetist that Brahms wrote them for was apparently a violinist first. And when he learned clarinet, he specifically learned it using vibrato since he was so used to having vibrato and a sound from violin. Other than that, most of the time clarinet was composed for and the sound was passed down without vibrato in mind. It's interesting to, to talk about this difference in clarinet sounds between classical and jazz, right? And, and like you mentioned, jazz is, or um, clarinet's not really so much uh, a main stay in the jazz genre, certainly not as much as it once was, right? You've got traditional jazz, like New Orleans jazz, that it's a real central part and it kind of fell out of favor for the saxophone. Uh, but interestingly enough, I, I know there, there was something of like a traditional jazz or specifically that New Orleans style of jazz uh, revival in, in England, right? It kind of came, came over with the British invasion. The other way they sort of got into traditional jazz, or at least a subculture developed. Uh, but speaking in terms of the different tones, do you hear that kind of thing in even modern jazz clarinets? Like someone like Annette Cohen, I think about, and her sound still sounds much different than someone like Acker Bill. Yeah, no, it's, um, it's not a widely popular sound even within the jazz community anymore. Um, Annette Cohen, of course, doesn't sound like a classical clarinetist, there's still still a little bit brighter and still a little more projection oriented, you know, to play over some of these louder instruments. But this kind of style just isn't isn't super popular. I'm trying to think of probably no one really in the professional circuit. You'd find some amateurs and um, enthusiasts that would sound like this, but no one that I can think of that's a huge name. I think this sound it's 
it's dated. We would definitely say now the sound is it's fallen out of favor. It's dated. But I also mean that in the way that like you can hear the era that this is from just from like yeah. hearing it. It sounds like velvety, like those studio orchestras that like that Hollywood orchestra sound, the jazz orchestra. And I mean, like, I think all four of us here have probably played jazz in some capacity, right? Yeah. I mean, Robbie, you're a pianist. Robbie certainly has. Yeah, yeah. I... I've done gigs on saxophone and Eric, have you done jazz clarinet? Yeah, I, I was in a jazz band all through high school. And then yeah, saxophone and clarinet. Yeah. We've got Steve, the drummer here. I mean, hell, we could even make our own combo if we wanted. Screw <laughs> 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 this podcast, guys. <laughs> I've got a new plan. But what I find interesting is I, I kind of want to direct the conversation to like, yes, these instruments that don't really go in jazz or kind of stay in jazz. I know that oboe was a tremendous failure for for mostly mechanical reasons here uh, i think the french the french had a brief stint where they tried incorporating oboe into jazz but it's simply not loud enough right we we can't yeah we're not a technical or loud enough instrument and um i mean piano is obviously a mainstay but between i don't know oh, yeah saxophone and clarinet i think it's mostly that saxophone is now just double clarinet for jazz right yeah but i mean there's the other instruments that don't participate in jazz right there's plenty of them. I mean, like, and if they do, they're, you know, they're kind of one-offs. I think we were talking earlier, like, you know, we've heard of French horn jazz. Steve, I think you mentioned that, but it's not like we've heard of a lot of French horn jazz players, you know? Sure. Yeah. No, I mean, I think it's just a funny, it's a funny distinction, you know, because it's it, at the end of the day, it's just like a, it's just a style thing, you know? I mean, you could have any instrument be a jazz instrument. It's again, or, or vice versa. Like there is no, it all is just, what you're doing with an instrument at the end of the day, you know? Yeah, I, um, I've thought a lot about why jazz clarinet has sort of fallen out. I mean, and don't get me wrong, there's still dedicated jazz clarinetists out there, but it's certainly fallen a long way since, you know, uh, Benny Goodman and Artie Shaw led the whole genre back in the, what would that be, like 40s through 50s. And I think ultimately it's just a difficult instrument, you know, and it's like a difficult instrument compared specifically with the saxophone so if you have the choice between playing clarinet and saxophone you're gonna have a much easier time picking up saxophone relatively quickly and getting into the jazz idiom as opposed to clarinet and i think it, i don't know why you know we saw that change specifically after Artie shaw and benny goodman were out of the out of the scene but i think ultimately that's that's what kind of led to the death. Why would you play an instrument that's so much harder for that that medium? And especially with the soprano saxophone, clearly the superior instrument of, <laughs> of the two. I guess what I wonder with that too, though, is that like I hear like Eric, I hear what you're saying, but at the same time, like I wonder how like recording technology, just like um, amplification technology, would also like challenge some of that too. Because I think about this with. Like I write a lot of vocal music and you're, you know, you'll see sometimes now like vocal music with microphones and like a wind, like a wind ensemble or something that before when you were just using acoustic forces, you could never accomplish that. But like now that we have amplification, like it, it does kind of raise that question again of like what, you know, what could be done just at, you know, implementing that technology. So it's just, it's interesting to think about, you know, yeah, I'm, recordings. Yeah, I totally hear you. I'm not, you know, with the clarinet, I'm not exactly sure it's an amplification issue. With some artists, it definitely is. But clarinet can be extremely loud, uh, given the opportunity. I think it's more literally a technical issue that the instrument is harder. Like most of the big, do you guys know Eddie Daniels? Eddie Daniels is a pretty famous jazz clarinetist, but he's also a saxophone player. And he's a very accomplished at both instruments. But he was primarily a saxophone player. I think he grew up and primarily went to school in, in New York and he was in that scene. He liked to play both and he practiced both instruments a lot, but he didn't really uh, take off as a clarinetist until someone gave him the opportunity. But most people don't, who get into jazz, they're gonna get into jazz on saxophone and maybe they'll double clarinet, but unless you're really putting in as much time on the instrument, it's just not something that's, that you're gonna like do well with casually. And the main reason to that is saxophone, of course, has pads. You know, you don't have to cover any tone holes. Easier to play in the upper register. You're not going to squeak as often is, is what it comes right down to. I, yeah, I think I heard, you know, big, there's a jazz saxophonist, Chris Potter, who's, who's real big today, one of the 
big leading jazz saxophonist. And, yeah. and he said in an interview once that it's easy to get, uh, or the saxophone is an instrument where it's easy to get a very passable tone. Like it's very yeah. straightforward to get a an okay sound on the sax. You know, of course, in all instruments, right, we want to stress it's, it's very difficult to do any instrument well. And, and he went on to, of course, talk about the ways he crafted his own saxophone sound. Uh, but I think, you know, just like Eric said, in terms of the instrument itself, something about producing the tone and getting it consistently the tone you, you want or the tone you need might be easier to do at first with saxophone. Yeah, of course, I didn't mean to, you know, belittle no. the saxophone and say it's an easy instrument. This but, just uh, did you know, saxophone. That's absolutely We're coming right. after saxophone. I also feel bad. I tried to play the saxophone once and I could not get a sound. Like I was, and like I heard, and I heard that too. People were like, oh, you, the amateur's not that hard. Like you can kind of, like you can get it. I got nothing, you know? <laughs> maybe, maybe, we'll say it was leaky. How about yeah, that? Yeah, you can blame the instrument. It had nothing yeah. to do with me, right? <laughs> right, of course. Yeah, but maybe the takeaway from that is, uh, you know, I think jazz, it's ease of accessibility. There's, there's, something to be said for you know jazz is much more or especially was much more of a everyone's kind of music than classical music has a reputation of being a little bit less accessible and you know jazz the instruments that got chosen were it seems definitely the what kind of skill curve would that be i always get this backwards um, oh I, is it a steep skill curve or is yeah. it like a i don't know but i know what you're getting at i don't but, you know, know it's, it's easier to get into saxophone probably than than it would be clarinet the instrument's cheaper it's more accessible stuff like that yeah and that's why you don't want jazz oboe <laughs> yeah though so i have heard there's some jazz j english horn have you ever heard jazz english horn oh that's I a have heard nightmare i i have heard that some people are doing that it's jazz bassoon too which is jazz bassoon. oh that's true yeah <laughs> yeah that's soon um, have you guys listened to some of this have you guys heard the lupaphone what no so it's a there's this we're getting onto a real tangent here now my teacher's friend is like an experimental instrument builder. And basically, you know, the, the English horn is a horribly bad instrument. I mean, it's just, <laughs> it just is. It's all the joys of playing an oboe with a vocal and 10 times right. less projection. The lupophone is like an attempt to uh, solve the problems of, of the, the complete lack of, of good design and like ergonomics on the English horn. And it's it's just a better English horn. It's a louder, better English horn. That's all it really is. But it won't get anywhere being called a lupophone. No, it's a <laughs> terrible name. Yeah. It is good stage name, kids. Stick with us. You'll go far in this town. <laughs> Could have just picked a different country. The American horn. You know, like <laughs> you go, boom. How does that not exist in our in America? How is there not an American horn? I feel like if the American horn existed, it would be the Vuvuzela. <laughs> Oh, did we do that? Was that us who made that? I don't know, but it's like the 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 spirit of those. Oh, the spirit of or something. You know? It definitely does not sound like an American. Yeah, I don't think Vuvuzelas are from here, but like <laughs> but the spirit of the Vuvuzela. You know, right. I mean, like, need something just really loud. I mean, like is like just I just think of a car horn. Frankly, is the American horn right? Like... Or a shotgun? You could call that <laughs> the American horn. <laughs> it's just whatever the loudest thing in the room basically is. That... <laughs> right. It's it's kind of a special spiritual distinction. Yeah. Whatever's, it's, yeah, it's whatever's the being that really counts with all this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we might say like Eric. Sometimes you're really being the American horn this episode. <laughs> could you quiet down? New bit. Here we yeah. go, folks. New merch. But... <laughs> And okay, why don't we take this this opportunity to transition on to our third selection for this week? This is our guest selection, right, Steve? Yes, yes, it is. So why don't you tell us just a little bit about it if you want, and then we can get playing. Yeah, absolutely. So, so yeah, so this is called Skin and Bone Jerome uh, by Steve Kern, and um, I tried to I tried to look up Steve Kern. I couldn't find anything about him. Um, there's a pastor Steve Kern who I don't think is the same person. There's always another. There's always a pastor Steve. Like when I when I search my name in Google, like Pastor Steve Crino comes up before me, and it hurts my heart <laughs> a little bit. But there are a lot of Pastor Steves out there that get a lot of uh, Google time. Anyway, um, <laughs> when I search Matt Pellegrino, it's a lot of like Italian guys from Long Island that like own a paving company. Yeah, <laughs> they all own paving companies. <laughs> um, so I, yeah, I tried to consider, like try to look this guy up, and I couldn't find anything. But you know, it just similar to a real good year for beer. It's you know, like the the goofy country songs. You just can't ignore them. And I I guess what I what I'm always trying to figure out with the song is, and again, since I don't, I didn't get to, I couldn't find anything on on this guy. Like 
I just don't know if like they're trying to be funny or like it just is like it just ends up being funny. Like I don't know if they're in on the joke all the time or not. So let well you know for the listeners, you guys can decide. Um, and uh, but yeah, this is Skin and Bone Jerome. Skin Bone Jerome. That boy can eat a ton. And then when he is done, he'll say, hey, that was fun. And then with a grin, he will ask, hey, what else you got to fill this empty spot? As a rug, it should have been. It's... I don't necessarily think they're not in on the joke, but I think the song is meant to be funny, right? It's yeah, like meant I, I, to be a funny song. It's clearly funny. Like, I mean, which is hard to do. I, I, I'm always happy, like, at least in classical music, I always find like humor is one of the hardest things to 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 really nail uh, as a composer. So I'm always happy to hear music that like legit makes me laugh, you know? So it's, but again, like that question of like, are they trying to make me laugh or is it just kind of what they got and I'm laughing like you know I'm just not sure but uh yeah I like the song because I don't know I I resonate with with uh with Skin and Bone Jerome because I always I'm I have like a pretty big appetite and uh it never seems to cease so um yeah so I can just I just I love eating and it just yeah it just kind of something of an inspirational figure in Skin and Bone Jerome. Yeah exactly <laughs> yeah ex- exactly so you know it's uh so yeah, so that's so that was kind of the inspiration there, and um, I also think there's a part of the song like I don't know if you guys heard like kind of got this sense that like it almost sounds like improvised or just kind of very spontaneous, like I, just because I think it vamps on like the same thing like over and over again, like it like I could see somebody just kind of being like just keep like just laying that down and then just singing about whatever they see around them or something like. <laughs> I mean, the rhymes are there, so like it maybe I'm sure it was like worked out, but like on some level, it feels like just kind of off the cuff in some way. And, and you know, listening to all these country songs for this show, it's got me like noticing the patterns, or at least unforgettified. Like you've got the the good year for beer, the very lushly written kind of very sad song about how miserable your life is and what kind of job you're going to take on to distract yourself, and then there's like ones about just like fucking weird people, you know. This skinny guy comes to my house. He eats all my food. He won't leave me alone. This girl Jolene won't stop trying to fuck my man. It's just look at all these weirdos I know. What episode was that? Yeah, what episode was that, Rob? No, well, I'm just saying country songs in general, like Jolene, right? The well, next episode. Okay, okay. Next episode. You guys heard of the song Jolene by Dolly Parton? Am I pronouncing that right? Yeah, that's how you say Dolly Parton. Yeah, so this, to me, the uh, the repetition of the background, right? Uh, and I don't know, what what would you even call that? The, a vamp. Like a vamp. Like a vamp. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, okay. Took me back instantly to how come my dog don't bark? Yeah. You know, because that's what he's, that's uh, what, episode three for all you viewers at home who haven't heard the song. And just like the kind of off the cuff style of singing, sometimes half talking as they... Uh, relay their story you know it's programmatic they're telling a story and obviously it's one meant to be humorous but instantly took me back to that style right i think what's something that i don't know maybe brings out the humor for me and i'm I'm gonna have a hard time or maybe i should say an even harder time articulating this than i normally have of articulating anything something about it it seems very high something about the frequencies seem like we're we're getting a lot of like I don't want to say yodel. Yodel is not the right word, but there's something about the recording and the quality of his voice that makes me laugh. I don't know what it is, and I don't mean like I'm I'm laughing at, you know, because it's poor or anything, but there's something about the whole presentation and the way it's recorded that just seems off kilter that makes me laugh when I listen to the song. Maybe related to that, there's maybe there's something we're picking up from all these musical, let's say, symbols or in, th- things that like they're indicators, right? Hmm. Uh, maybe there's something we're picking up from from all this because I mean when I hear that vamp in particular, this one, it's it's kind of like a blues progression related vamp, right? We're dealing mm-hmm. with a lot of seven chords. I thought of Ed Ed Nettie. Do you guys remember Ed Ed Nettie? Yeah, yeah. I know exactly what you mean when you say yeah, that. Yeah, right. I, I wasn't thinking it, but like once you said that, I'm like I, that's that makes a lot of sense. The bass line, like doing that yeah, little. Yeah. There's something. It's almost like this music has come to mean something like 
perhaps at least humorous, right? And there's right. there's certainly a format for that in music, right? You've got historical pieces that are called like humoresque. Even the scherzo was meant to be interpreted somewhat as like a tongue-in-cheek joke. It means joke, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, like uh, this is very clearly meant to be a funny song. These these semi-improvisational sounding shouts with at least the lyrics sound planned out because the the punchlines are definitely there. But it's, I mean, I think I said this off camera earlier, this music, it's almost starting to parry itself because of like how self-referential it is, right? Like country music, it, it's, it's got this all, all these established tropes and genres and like, I don't know, maybe the skin and bone Jerome is like a character or something, you know? Yeah. Skin and bone Jerome, he just like comes to your house and, you know, he just raids your, raids your pantry and eats all your food and then he leaves. <laughs> he could be like a yeah, bad uh, Santa for, but instead for like Thanksgiving. Like, well, a, us. like a Thanksgiving anti-Santa. Right, like if you're not thankful enough, Skin and Bones Jerome comes, Bobby. Yeah, keep, comes and eats folk tale your, to your, scale your... Yeah, folk tale <laughs> to scare your children. It sounds like that thing that Dwight talks about in like one of those episodes of The Office where he like hits them with the thing and he's like, are you feeling impish or... Oh, yeah, what was Admirable. that? The admirable. Or admirable. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there is an evil Santa in in some, I want to say like germanic country folklore there's like hans moof he he comes and takes you and throws you in in, in his like sack if you're being bad so wow yeah maybe maybe skin and bone jerome he's he's the the opposite of, of thanksgiving he, he just seems comes pretty harmless though like you know like he seems like he just that's not extreme punishment but it's just you don't get your lovely thanksgiving dinner yeah like he's just like i don't know it's more like yeah it's more just like a if you don't eat it quickly like skin and bone jerome will eat it you know like oh, yeah. no. You know, it's more like an incentive to, like, eat all the food. And who like among that. us has not been a skin and bone Jerome at one point in their life? I've definitely right. eaten all of a friend's snacks. At oh, my God. I, every time I go to my girlfriend's house, like, I, like it's my job. Like, it's not even, like, <laughs> like, like literally, like, I, I am, like, the, like, the human garbage disposal. Like, when I go to the house, like, when I go to the house, they're just like, oh, well, we've got this whole second bowl of potatoes. We're gonna eat all this because we don't feel like cleaning it up, you know. And and I'm like, great, I love potatoes, and so it works pretty well, you know. And then it converts to pure muscle. Not usually how that works, but sometimes, you know, you can eat your way to the other side with potatoes. Fucking inscribe that on my tombstone. Eat my way to the other side with potatoes. Okay. So we've had we've had some country, some jazz, some country, and I think now we're going to take a trip back over to jazz with our final selection this week, right? That's right. And it's actually, you know, prescient that we talk about instruments in jazz and instruments in genre, because the selection I've prepared for this week is by Howard Johnson and his group Gravity. Howard Johnson is a jazz tuba player, a very famous jazz tuba player, kind of the jazz tuba player, as you might imagine. Though there are others because his group Gravity is made up with the rhythm section, plus I think it's four other tubas that all do these arrangements that he writes out. So we're going to take a listen to a couple selections on the track from Right Now. It's, oh, thank you. It's Right Now. Uh, yeah, and that's Howard Johnson and Gravity. Let's take a listen to this, this track. So skip ahead to a middle uh, excerpt unless you just wanted to talk about that right off the bat uh let's hear the second excerpt then we can go back to that So we, we got two selections there because it's sort of a longer track and we wanted to hear some of that unaccompanied or, or well, it starts off unaccompanied introduction and then when we get into more of the soloing, the kind of traditional jazz playing. But yeah, just to give you a, a bit of information about Howard Johnson, because I was really surprised I'd never really heard of him before. The name sounded familiar, but Howard Johnson was one of the, or like I said, one of the top tools, tuba solos since the early 60s. You can go find his website at hojotuba.com. It looks like he's also on Twitter at Hojo Tuba, so 
go check him out. Uh, but yeah, he's played with guys from everyone from Charles Mingus, Hank Crawford, Gil Evans, to even some like you know rock and pop groups. He played on John one of uh, John Lennon's solo albums. If you guys know Levon Helm and the band from the like the Scorsese movie, The Last Waltz, he was the tuba player in that brass band that they have uh, in that outfit. So he's been. Kind of a very prolific player on tuba and on baritone saxophone. I think he doubles for you know, decades. So, um, yeah, just to get into the meat of the selection itself, right? Well, it's the tuba, which is kind of a weird thing to hear in jazz, right? It, it's not necessarily the first instrument we go to, certainly for soloing. I think probably soloing in any genre, tuba is rare. And I'm interested to hear what you guys thought, especially about the writing for multiple tubas, right? In the beginning, we hear these harmonies that sort of support the solo he's doing at the top. And it reminds me a lot, I think, unsurprisingly, of Gil Evans and the kinds of writing he'd do for, like, Sketches of Spain and Miles Davis and stuff. So the tubas really, I don't know, they really change it for me. Well, I mean, it's definitely a, a, a chunky boy ensemble, right? We've got a grand total <laughs> of five tubas, if I'm, if I'm correct. I think that's the, yeah, that's how it that works is... out. Three more tubas than is typically gathered in one ensemble. <laughs> Fair to say, there's like I don't know, usually two tubas max in like an orchestra. Sometimes yeah, usually it's usually one, and then maybe if it's a really big piece, you get like Mahler. Second. Yeah, yeah. If it's like a Mahler or Bruckner, you've got probably two tubas in there. Yeah, but I mean, there's there's just so much to say about the tuba. I mean, Steve, Steve, if someone approached you and said, "Can you write me a tuba solo accompanied by four other tubas?" What would you think? I mean, no. I mean, I would be like, no. <laughs> I was like, no, why would you? No. Um, but it is weird. Like, I feel like the tuba, I'm just, I, I, was, I wasn't thinking of this before, but like, oh, what's his face? Uh, Daugherty, Michael Daugherty has a piece, a tuba concerto that they did with the Philly Orchestra because they're, they have a, they had a new tuba player and she's like incredible and does stuff on the tubas like no one else has done. And like, you see a similar kind of, and that piece like kind of used a lot of like blues kind of riffs and things in it too. But um, I think more and more like the tuba, we're, we're thinking about the tuba a little differently, you know, and um, which is great because I think it sounds awesome. I mean, I after hearing this, if, if let's put it this way, if if you asked me before hearing this piece, would you like to write a piece for five tubas? I'd be like, no. But now I'm like, maybe like. <laughs> I'm I'm leaning in the direction of of writing it now, which is I think is a testament to uh, his playing and everything. He's 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 convincing me. I think we talked about less and more common instruments, especially in like any in a jazz genre, right? And we said you know tuba is definitely on the list of less common. But my thing with tuba, I think it's one of those instruments that has a lot of kind of unexplored territory, right? There's people. I think right now really pushing the envelope of this instrument that we typically was relegated to like just playing soul and do over and over again. I mean, I worked for years with a phenomenal young tubist. I'm going to give him a little shout out. His name is David Mercedes. Uh, and I would listen to him like warm up every morning and the dude's insane. I wrote him an awful, awfully hard piece of music because he told me like, here's all the things I can do. So I stuck them all in a six minute piece. And that'll be my segue into the uh, talking about the intro of this piece. That crazy sound we all heard at the beginning, right? Who was expecting tuba multiphonics in a jazz tuba album? And uh, for those of us who don't know, a multiphonic is, it literally means multiple sounds. It is uh, typically, you know, an instrument like a, like any of our instruments except Robbie. We're multiphonic instruments. We, or I mean polyphonic instruments. We can only produce one sound at a time. The clarinet, the oboe, we can only make one sound at a time. The tuba is no exception. However, there are tricks and ways mechanically that you can create more than one sound at a time on many instruments, and that's called a multiphonic. In this case, he's singing, right? This is a sung multiphonic, I believe. Uh, you know Maybe. what? I, I have no idea about that. I'm out of my depth in terms of things like that. I, 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 I think you're right. I think, yeah, I think he is singing. I think he you, sings the higher pitch and keeps a stationary lower tone, right? I think so. Um, I think you hear the beginning of the singing and then he does a pretty good job of integrating it with the instrument. Um, so you don't necessarily notice that it's his voice after the initial start of the multiphonic. 
as he descends that scale or arpeggio. I don't remember exactly what it was. I, th I think he like kind of stepped down, made like a little cadence pattern out of the stationary pitch in the tuba and then like his sung pitch in the multiphonic. But either way, it's incredibly hard. I understand yeah, it's that it's easy. it is physically very difficult to do that and like mentally very requires a lot of focus. So we're talking some right off the bat, big flex, high level technique, tuba playing. And then at in like that second excerpt we we heard the dude shreds it seems like there's an agenda of tuba playing and tuba writing to prove that like this instrument can shred we talked about a tuba concerto those seem like they're a fairly recent phenomenon right i mean maybe in the last 70 years have tuba concertos even really started cropping up maybe yeah the first tuba concerto is now that i think about the it. first big one i can think of is the strauss or no not the not the strauss sorry uh i was confusing oboe concertos that i don't like uh, there's the Strauss concerto that I don't like and the Vaughn Williams concerto that I don't like. And he wrote a tuba concerto. So the Vaughn Williams tuba concerto is the big one that I think of. That would probably be the biggest one. Yeah, that would probably be the biggest and one of the earliest ones for sure. I like that you're all bringing up that, you know, this is not an instrument that we typically associate with virtuosity, essentially, right? And mostly because, yeah, the music that tubists are generally required to play, just it's not that technically difficult right uh in the standard repertoire but there are and i guess i don't think that people really realize this there are a lot of truly incredible tuba players out there you have to understand that there, there's almost no jobs for tuba there's basically one tenured position per orchestra that you could you could feasibly win and if you win a job like that you're going to stay there for life generally. Um, but there's hundreds of tubas who are all vying for these single positions. Uh, so if uh, you brought up Philadelphia Orchestra, Steve, mm -hmm. for like a job like that, 200 tuba players who are all overqualified will surely show up for a job like that. They will descend upon Philadelphia. You'll see hundreds of tubas walking around with their instruments on their backs uh, for whatever weekend that is. And, it's like going to uh, be a very low version of Rite of the Valkyries as they all descend <laughs> on the city. Yeah, exactly. And actually, the the lady who won that job, I believe, I, I remember hearing about her. Her I name her is... Carol Jantz? I think it's Jantz. Jantz, okay. She won the job, I think, when she was 19 years old. Yeah, no, she's like a... She's phenomenal. She's That's like insane. absolutely phenomenal. Philadelphia, uh, for the people who aren't super into classical music, is a top five, generally regarded as like a top five orchestra in the United States. And so for a 19-year-old to win that in this day and age, you know, she's competing against people who have probably been playing the tuba twice as long as she's been alive in some cases. And she won the job anyway. So she's truly a prodigy and virtuoso, like an incredible, incredible player. But it reminded me, Robbie, do you remember when this guy came to our oh, undergrad? Yeah. What what's that brass quintet? What was that? No, it's it's not brass. You're thinking of um I think Canadian brass. Oh. But this guy is a tuba soloist and you know, no one can see what I'm holding up. But his name is I think Oystein Bodvisk. That's right, Bodvisk. I do rem I do remember him. That's right. And uh our brass department brought him in, I think when we were freshmen or sophomores. And just on his bio, he writes, he is the only tuba virtuoso to have carved out a career exclusively as a soloist rather than becoming a member of an orchestra or accepting a teaching post. This guy completely single-handedly changed my perception of what tuba was capable of. You know, we had insane, like, flute-level double-tonguing and triple-tonguing through all registers of the instrument, incredible multiphonics, just unbelievable virtuosity to the point where you could compare him to people like Hilary Hahn or like Marina Piccinini, um, any of these like incredible, incredible virtuosic performers on their instruments. Uh, truly one of a kind musician. To hear this jazz, this is like the jazz version of that, like where it's it's becoming more and more common to hear tuba players really showing just what the instrument can do and i'm i'm all for it i'm excited excited to see where they take us musically that's, anyway, that's, that's, that's my pedestal yeah yeah the skill ceiling is getting higher for some of these these kind of obscure more obscure instruments and i think something that's i don't think we've mentioned and worth saying 
the reason why this is so impressive is because of the skill ceiling thing. Uh, historically, like flutes and violins, that's been a piano. Those are high skill ceiling instruments where we've always known they could do a lot. But simply like to do something like this on the tuba is, is like, it's unheard of because producing a sound on the instrument is like monumentally difficult to begin with, right? Mm -hmm. Right. So we're not saying like, oh, tubas are like a lame instrument. We're just saying up until now, like there hasn't really been big envelope pushing kind of kind of like this. So no bashing of the tuba is, is happening here for our, our our tuba enthusiasts in the audience. This is a pro tuba environment. This yes. <laughs> yeah, we got to get one thing straight from the top. Pro tuba, staunchly. <laughs> it's, um, you know, I've heard it compared to like, some of these instrument techniques um, and some of these kind of lesser instruments, it's almost like an arms race at this point. People are trying to outdo each other. And so all these new techniques that aren't normally associated with these instruments have basically become the norm and are quickly becoming the norm so that you have to learn them and the level just gets higher and higher every generation, basically. I think that's probably all we've got for the waltz. We're going to take this moment and give Steve a moment to plug, you know, a project or maybe a couple projects that he's been working on. Steve, I'm going to give you the floor. What you've been doing. Awesome. So, um, yeah, well, thank you guys for having me on. This was like so much fun. And um, I had never I didn't know what Forgotify was. So I was happy to to jump in and find some new stuff. And now I'm going to check it, check it out more. Um, but, yeah, I wanted to um, just talk about. Uh, one of my recent projects um, through the the company, a podcast opera company, and um, basically they are a company that is it's a collective of Peabody students uh, primarily who are trying to merge the genres of opera and podcast, um, which I think makes sense. They're both storytelling um, mediums, but I think that you know it's interesting to consider their their differences and how we can bring that together. Um, so one of my, uh, I was commissioned to write a, uh, one of the podcast operas for this first season, which was entitled Friends House. Um, and you can check it out on my website. Um, they're also, I believe on Spotify, hopefully not Forgotify. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> mostly I actually don't know, but if you guys find it, you, you, you can tell me it's okay, <laughs> you know, but, um, but yeah, but it basically, uh, the libretto was written by Joshua Scheid, and um, it's basically about a Quaker, like kind of commune's a bad word to use here, but just like a, like a Quaker living situation, um, and they are like also, they're looking for like a new roommate, and it's kind of just like talking about their uh, chemistry in the house and stuff, and their relationship to community and religion and different things, so tackles a lot of interesting themes, some really relevant themes right now, especially about community. Um, and uh, it's for three singers, soprano, baritone, and tenor, and uh, piano. So um, yeah, so it's on my website. Um, you can also check out more of the, po uh, the Opera Podcast um, episodes at their website, uh, podcastoperacompany.com, as well as their Instagram. Uh, their Instagram uh, tag is Podcast Opera Company, and so is their same Facebook. But yeah. But hope you uh, check it out. That sounds like a really awesome project. I'm definitely going to be that's a great idea right yeah. after this. All right. Well, then I think this is the part of um, the episode where we all kind of talk about what we listened to this week, or you know, what we've been listening to. Robbie, you're going to start us off this week because you started uh, started us off last week, and uh, that's we just, just gotta, the order now. I yeah. could sense you were going to pick me out, so I was getting my Spotify ready because I'm ready this week. I've been really listening to one particular track. It's called Stuff Like That, and it's from the Quincy Jones album, Sounds. So the album is Sounds, and the track is Stuff Like That. Listen to that. That's a good song. Listen to it on repeat. Quincy Jones? Quincy Jones. Quincy Jones is, like, one of my teacher's favorite, like, orchestrators. He's, like, he's a genius. He's, he's, been, he's been doing, he's always got great songs, always got great arrangements, been around for forever. And this is another good one. I'm a big fan of this song. In particular, Steve, what have you been checking out this week? Yeah, sure. Listening to lately. Um, so one thing that I've been listening to, um, one of my uh, theory uh, mentors, uh, Dr. Omar Thomas, told me to check this out a while ago. But it's um, basically the uh, jazz violinist Regina Carter, and um, 
her album, I believe the title, it's the title track, but it's the French um, After a Dream. And basically, so one of my favorite composers is, is Gabriel Fauré. And um, it's like, it's like, I feel like he's really underrated, but I think he really writes beautiful, simple kind of melody and everything. So basically she does like a jazz ballad arrangement of that art song. Um, and it's, it's really cool. I, 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 so it's definitely more, it's definitely like more chill and just kind of has a different, but really nice, like kind of ambiance to it and everything. And, and her playing is phenomenal on it. So yeah, so that's, that's what I would recommend for this week. Feeling Eric wants to go last as always. So I'll just give my very typical and boring answer. I've just been listening to like tons of K-pop as usual. I think this week I've been listening to a lot of Haze, the artist Haze, H-E-I-Z-E. -E. Uh, there's like a cool R&B thing happening in Korea right now where they're like really interested in it. So I would check out Haze if anyone's curious. Cool. Yeah. Um... I'm with you, Steve. I think Foray is definitely underrated too. I put one of his pieces on my graduation recital. But uh, yeah, I wanna I wanna check out that jazz Foray basically. Yeah, it's really cool. This uh, this week I've been listening to Mendelssohn Symphony Number no. Three and Four, which I believe is Scottish and Italian. Both are just phenomenal symphonies, and a little bit of the Schubert octet. And in case anyone is wondering, all of those pieces have huge clarinet lines. So, you know, I'm getting it in that nice. way. It's, it's not almost like I've, albums for me. It's almost like I've heard Eric play those very Mendelssohn clarinet things perhaps hundreds of times before. Yeah, perhaps. Hmm. Uh, who can really tell? You know, we lived together. I played a lot of things. You know, who knows what I played? You definitely played, played things. You definitely played Shostakovich 9, though. Yeah. And messed yeah. up my exam. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so i i played what did you think it was it was uh oh no it was it was prokofiev uh five five but i thought it was shostakovich nine because of you i played yeah i had a i had shostakovich nine a lot on my audition list that semester and so i was practicing it all the time and one time i come downstairs and man asked me what have you been working on I was like, oh, I had to do some Prokofiev five today, but that was like the day I did both Prokofiev and Shostakovich, <laughs> and I had only practiced the Prokofiev for a few minutes, you know. But like he <laughs> went on to associate Shostakovich nine with Prokofiev five, and then it came up on what like an exam you had, the preliminary exam. Do you remember that, Steve? Of course I do. Yeah, yeah aced it. <laughs> yeah, I know I did all right. I mean, but uh, yeah, it yeah. was it was it was tough. I mixed up Prokofiev and Shostakovich like an idiot. It happened. Going <laughs> back to that. Uh, good times. Yeah. But I think that just about does it for this week. Robbie, do you want to give us our signature outro? Right. So uh, thanks for listening. Thanks again to Steve for coming on the show. We really loved having you. So happy uh, to be here. Thank you. And everyone, check out all his stuff, all the podcast, opera stuff. That sounds real cool. Uh, you, well, if you did enjoy the show, we'd ask that you please follow us on Spotify and rate and review the show wherever you found it. You can also keep up with us on Twitter at Drop Haystack. And then on Facebook, uh, Facebook and Instagram, we are Drop the Needle in the... Oh, yeah, I almost said Facebook. And <laughs> what is that? Uh, it, it, I mean, they are owned by the same company. so Might I mean, as well. Yeah. One day we'll all be owned by Facebook or whatever. I thought you were going to say Facetagram. Facetagram, whichever yeah. one. That's pretty good too. Yeah, in like any that. case, on both of those, Instagram and Facebook or whatever unholy amalgam they one day become, <laughs> inevitably, we're going to be drop the needle in the haystack. Thanks for that, Robbie. All right. As always, folks, thanks for listening. We'll catch you next week. <laughs>